Well, we are speeding our way through Acts, aren't we? We're already in Acts 14. Can you believe it? We, we just started a few weeks ago, but we are, uh, as I said before, we're following the narrative at a, uh, at a flyover view to see what God is doing through his people for the sake of his name through the book of Acts. We see that he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell and fill his believers and empower them for the mission that he called them to do. So that when he promises, I will build my church, he's actually the active agent in that process. It's not the people that builds the church, it's the Spirit of God that's building his church. And he does it through his people. Um, but it's uh, it's easy to overlook what God is doing sometimes and, and look at just what people are doing. To focus on people. Um, and, and I thought, hey, it's March Madness time. I think this is a really, really uh, easy way for us to connect with the idea of a team, right? What, what does it mean to play for a team? It, well, in short, it means that you're, you're representing something, a school in this particular example, on, on the front of your jersey. You might have your name on the back, you know, you have a number, but when, when you're tracking the bracket, you know, who's going to win the championship? There's no individual's name is going to go in that place, right? It's whatever team scores the most points in the final game, they will win the championship. So I think it's safe to say that the name on the front of the jersey is so much more important than the name on the back, right? And uh, I think we got a graphic up there that just helps us visualize that there, right? Because March Madness is fun, you know? It's, it's just a lot of fun to, to cheer for all these uh, upstart teams that you've never heard of. St. Peter's, who's ever heard of St. Peter's? They're in the Sweet 16 because they've knocked off two teams and you know, I, I couldn't name one player on that team. I have no idea who they are. I hardly know who St. Peter's is, but, but that's the team they're representing. So in the book of Acts, the gospel is spreading to all nations. He's using his church to spread the gospel. He's building his church as he rescues people from sin and brings them into his family. Now, when we get to Acts 14, we're seeing how do the, these missionaries represent Christ on the front lines? As these churches are started, or as they're planted, is another word, in, in these cities around the Mediterranean, what does it look like? Does it look like a bunch of individuals just out for themselves, out trying to make a name for themselves? Or are they doing it for something bigger than themselves? Are they doing it for the Lord they claim to represent? Are they on Team Jesus? And I believe that we get a very challenging look at the church on the go, serving in the name of Jesus. And, and I'm going to say that's our main takeaway as well, that we ought to serve in the name of Jesus. So here we are in Acts chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 19 to 28. We're going to see some things that we don't typically see in the church life today, but nevertheless, these are important considerations for us today and how we ought to live. So, so track with me here, Acts 14, verses 19 to 28. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Okay, so uh, in chapters 13 to 14, which we're, we're kind of flying over here, what we see is when Paul and Barnabas are sent out on this missionary journey, they go town by town around the Mediterranean to strategic port cities where there's a good presence of population, a lot of lost people, but they're also connected by roads and boats, so it's, so it's easier for the gospel to spread from those uh, bases. They go to the synagogue, they preach the gospel to, to seek to rescue those who are uh, Jewish and familiar with the Old Testament prophecies, but they have not yet heard of the crucified and risen reigning Christ. So they come in, they fill in those blanks. Here's what everything's pointing to. It's Jesus. Some will believe and some will reject. And then what happens after you have that initial uh, explosion of belief and the church starts is there's always opposition. And then the, the Jews who reject them are angry with them, are wanting to kill them. That's a, a theme that goes with Paul all of his life. <laughs> Whenever Paul opens his mouth, someone wants to shut it. Okay, someone wants to kill him. And and so then usually based on threats or, or violence or mobs, then they move on to the next city. And then the cycle repeats. So here we are at chapter 14. And these Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So they were ticked off from the beginning, so ticked off that I guess they quit their day job or something. And they're just following Paul and Barnabas everywhere they go, just trying to catch them, trying to beat them up or kill them. So I, I, I don't understand um, that kind of anger. Uh, so that's why scripture helps us understand what's going on in these guys' hearts. In Acts 13, verses 44 to 45, we see that when they're preaching the gospel, and they gather on the Sabbath, they gather at the synagogue, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So God is moving in the hearts of people, and he's drawing the lost to himself. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Jealousy. They're jealous in their hearts of what God is doing through the apostles. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So basically heckling him while he's preaching the gospel to all these people. These people are trying to hear good news. Gentiles certainly are included in that, in that whole city. But the Jews want the attention. The Jews want to be the centerpiece, which shows that they lack a confidence. They, they lack that trust and that relationship with God. That keeps God at the center point and celebrates what God is doing. No, no, no. I need to be at the middle. This is about me. This is about our traditions. This is about our culture. This is about our synagogue. And this guy comes in from out of town and now all these people are coming. They're enraged. They're jealous. So the first point I want us to consider from Acts 14. These Jews that come and that, that are trying to kill Paul. Well, the church is confident in who their Lord is. 
Paul and Barnabas are confident in him. So they're serving in the name of Jesus because they're confident in him. They, Paul has seen the risen Christ. There's no doubt in his mind. Jesus is the Lord and Savior of all. But the Jews reject that. They want the crowds. They want the attention. They want the people. And they will kill Paul if that's what it takes to try to turn some of the attention back to themselves. So here they are in chapter 14. They catch up to him. And they stir up the crowds. They persuade the crowds. And in a mob-like frenzy, they stone Paul. And then they drag him outside the city. Now, what stuck out to me that's, that's interesting about that is typically they would drag someone outside the city first and stone them. But I'm thinking, they're like, hey, he's gotten away from us so many times. We're not going to allow any kind of justice system. We're not going to allow any kind of authorities. We're not going to allow any kind of delay to keep us from getting this guy right now. And they plot and they actually stone him in the city. Then drag him outside the city and they leave him for dead. And if you're not familiar with stoning as a form of execution, it's bloody, it's gruesome, it's painful, and it's a horribly slow way to die. So I would submit to you, if they think Paul was dead, it's because he very well was close to it. And yet, when the disciples come around him, he stands up, he goes back inside the city. So who's really in control in the midst of this mob-like frenzy and Paul's painful persecution and almost death at the hands of these people? Jesus is completely in control. And he said, Paul, you're going to take my name to the world. I'm not done with you yet. They can, they can try to do what they want to you, but you are mine. And Paul knew that. So he stands up and he keeps going. His confidence is in Christ. And meanwhile, when the disciples are given an opportunity to accept worship in Lystra before Paul's stoning, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the priests of Zeus and, and these uh, pagan gods, these false worshipers, they want to offer sacrifice to, to Paul and Barnabas because they think that they have miraculous power, that they are these gods. And Paul and Barnabas rip their clothes in mourning and say, Stop! Don't do that! We're people just like you! This wasn't from us. This is from our God. So I don't know what the Jews are so jealous of because when Paul and Barnabas are given the opportunity to accept praise, to accept worship, they say, No, absolutely not. It is not us. It is Jesus. He's the one that healed this man. Stop it. So contrast that between the violent, jealous Jews, Paul and Barnabas, who will not accept praise and worship. And then, after Paul rises back up on his feet, goes to the city, the next day travels and begins the journey 60 miles to Derby, where guess what he's going to do again? Reach the gospel. Tell people how much God loves them and what lengths Jesus did uh, went to to redeem their soul. And he was just beaten to the point of death. And still he goes? Still he preaches the gospel? I mean, 
I would probably take that as a sign from the Lord, like, hey, maybe I, maybe I should do an early retirement thing, or, uh, you know, I think the Lord's going to go call, call me somewhere else, less contentious, far, far, far away from these Jews that are trying to kill me. He keeps going. Church, what a challenge. What a challenge to us. In our Christian life, difficulty is the test of true discipleship. Hardship of whether we really believe that Jesus is in us. If Jesus' Spirit is really in us, the Holy Spirit of God, and God has called us to a purpose, and He will see that purpose through, come hell or high water is the expression, right? So how a Christian responds to difficulty shows, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Now, in sailing, I think, I'm not a sailor, and I don't think anyone here is a sailor, um, wouldn't know a boat rigging from, you know, how to fix a car. Caleb knows how to fix cars. I do not, okay? That, that, but that's foreign to me. But I do know this, okay? If you're sailing in a boat, you don't want to be sailing straight into a strong wind, okay? Especially with a sailboat, right? Like, it's going to blow you back. It's going to blow you off course. You're not going to be able to get to where you want to go. You're not going to get your desirable destination. However, there are ways in which you can navigate that strong wind and still get to where you need to go. One example, a technique is called tacking. And I looked this up so I could make sure I'm communicating it correctly, but tacking is when um, the ship turns its bow, the front of the ship, toward and through the wind so that the direction from which the wind blows from one side of the boat to the other allows the boat to make progress towards the desired destination. Okay, so if the wind's blowing this way, I'm going to try to capitalize on that coming across and then go back in a zigzag pattern and still move forward even though there's opposition, namely in the wind. And I thought, man, that illustration doesn't even compare to what we have in Christ Jesus, right? You can be up against the strongest obstacles, but who do we know that commands the wind? He commands the storm. He's not this little pilot in, in, in a skiff just trying to navigate. He commands the wind. He tells it to cease. He tells it to blow. And he's got his hand firmly on the rudder of our life. And he's sailing us exactly where he wants to go. So Paul, by continuing on in the ministry and serving in the confidence of Jesus Christ, says, Hey, I know opposition's coming. I know the storms of wind, or, uh, the wind storms are going to blow, but... Jesus has got me. He's my captain. I'm not going home until he wants me to go home. Do we have that kind of confidence in our Christian life? I know that I don't. I know it. But I pray for it. I pray that the Holy Spirit will give me that confidence, that will give me that boldness to speak the gospel, to keep pressing on. And when hardships come, death or, or cancer, or sickness, or financial troubles, or, or rejection from our culture, our confidence will stay centered on the Son of God. In 1 John 5.13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So we tell people, I know the way to eternal life. That's an area overconfident thing to say. No, it's not. Because I'm not basing it in myself. 
and basing it on the words of Jesus, the one who has died and come back again and knows what's beyond the grave. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you too. This is the way. You follow me. I know I have eternal life. Only because of Jesus Christ. You can have that confidence too in him. Do you have that confidence today? I hope that you do. Secondly, as we serve uh, in, in the confidence that he supplies, because we're confident in him, we can also freely serve others. No, no attachments holding us back. No asterisks or hidden clauses at the bottom of a contract. I will serve you, but, you know, I'm holding something back. No, we can freely serve others, invest our lives into others. Look again at verse 21, chapter 14, verse 21. Right? They went on to Derby. They preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. That's the most loving thing, the freeing thing that, that Paul could do or that I could do. Make disciples. Fulfill the calling that God has given to us. Is Jesus going to call us to do something and, and say, you're not going to be able to do it? You can't do it. You can't make disciples. What kind of torture is that? Not only does he promise we will make disciples, throughout our life he is using us to point people to himself. Now, you might think to yourself, I'm not doing a very good job of it. Yeah, I'm not. I, I could do a much, much better job. In fact, I think... Jesus could pick just about anybody to be up here and do a better job than I'm doing. And yet, he has called me to make disciples. He's called you to make disciples. And we can freely do that, knowing that our king has not set us up to fail. He's called us to join him in the mission that will succeed. Now, the question is, or, or wait, I, I have one more thought on that. Um, Paul, who is just stoned by people, didn't give up on people. Don't you love that? Yeah. He was so burned, so hurt, almost killed and left for dead. And what does he do immediately in the next city? Opens up himself, shares his testimony, gets vulnerable with people, shares the gospel. People are not the obstacle. But they're also not the object of our worship, right? We shouldn't worship people. We shouldn't worship, worship their opinions or perceptions of us. They're also not our subjects. We don't make disciples so that people will come under us and report to us and be like us. We freely serve them in the name of Jesus and to be like Jesus. I'm, I'm a part of the process, but I'm not tangled up in it. I have no self-interest. It, it has to come from a heart of love. And that's where it starts in making a disciple. Paul loved these people. Do you love the lost that are around you? Do you love brothers and sisters in Christ that are around you and are looking for ways to pour into them and disciple them? If you don't know how, and I often don't when I'm encountering someone, I'm trying to figure out, how do I, how do I help point you to Jesus? I, I pray for God's help with that. He will give us wisdom and show us what to say, what to offer, how to invite, how to speak, how to address um, a spiritual topic in a conversation. And then as we talk and we're praying for God's wisdom, we also listen. We listen to what that person's particular needs are. I was talking to a young man playing basketball. 
and uh, and I saw him playing by himself. Went over there. We start playing ball, and and when we first started the conversation, we're talking about purpose in life, and and he was talking like he had no clue what his his purpose in life was. And I was like, okay, that's that's interesting. And so I started I started sharing like, well, hey, here's here's the gospel. Here's what God made us for. And and th then he stops me, and he takes the conversation in a different direction. And I come to find out he's a Jehovah's Witness. And he knows all about the books of the Bible. He knows all these verses. And and so he's not some some clueless teenager that's trying to figure out what's going on in life. He already has an idea. He thinks he knows what life is about. So I'm like, huh, maybe I should have done a little bit more listening at the beginning of that conversation. And and so I had to adapt. I had to pray for wisdom even in that moment. Okay, what what does he need? He needs to know that Jesus is God. The Son of God is not not a created being, but he is fully God. So that's where the conversation needed to go from there. So we serve others by making disciples and pointing them to Jesus. If they have physical needs, help them in that way too. That's a part of it, but we're making sure that we point them to the one who is loving beyond us. We also see that Paul and Barnabas took the time to strengthen the souls of the believers. Look at that. In verses 21 to 22, they're, they're finishing their missionary journey. They're going back to all of the cities that they visited, including the place that Paul was stoned, by the way. Why? In order to strengthen the church. Or another way you could translate that, that word is support. Support the church. They genuinely cared about these people. They didn't just say, hey, you came to Jesus? Cool. I'm out of here. You know, you fend for yourself and I'm, I'm moving on because it's just a numbers game. No, hey, how are you guys doing? You know, Chris, Chris, how are you doing? How's your family? I know we're, we're praying for, for your, you know, your mother-in-law. We, we were praying for this. Or, you know, Caleb, hey, how'd that Bible study go that you were starting up? They, they took the time to come alongside and help these people in their spiritual journey. And they encouraged them on. They loved them. Because life is hard. And Jesus said, you're walking the narrow way. Few will find the way that leads to eternal life. So why don't we care about those on the left and right of us, all around us, and make it easier for them to walk that already hard way? Isn't it, I don't know, easier is maybe not the right term, but isn't it more encouraging for you when people come alongside you and encourage you on in this walk? How many of us could say, hey, when I was at my lowest point, someone came with just the right word of encouragement? Someone prayed for me. Someone texted me and asked how I'm doing. And I needed that at just the right time. They strengthened souls. And I'm so glad that at the end of Paul's ministry, we didn't read a bunch of headlines about him uh, being verbally abusive to people in the church. Or using his position to manipulate people. Or trying to get a bunch of money and live comfortably off the backs of other believers. Why? Because they were in it to serve Jesus, not themselves. They gave themselves to support and strengthen the church. And here's the last thing we see um, under freely serving others. They appointed elders. They appointed elders. Elders, pastors, shepherd leaders of the flock. But Paul and Barnabas didn't do this for them. For, for, for their own sakes. Verse 23 says, they appointed elders for them. 
in the church. It'd be really easy for Paul and Barnabas to say, hey, we, we started a bunch of churches and, and we're going to take credit for that. We're going to put our name on this church and, and then we're going to try and go and get more churches under our name. They said, no, this is bigger than us. We need to raise up shepherd leaders who will care for these people long term. Pastors in the church, pastors who will do an even better job than we will loving them long term because we're constantly moving about. They need someone there with them, shepherding them, overseeing them. And we're going to pray and fast to figure out who the Lord wants to be their leaders. And we'll commit them to the Lord. Do we have the mindset in ministry that we're committing the people we care about and disciple to the Lord? At the end of the day, I can't be responsible for your soul. Jesus is responsible for your soul. And I have to trust that the good shepherd is taking good care of his flock. And I do the best that I can to point people to him, and I pray for them, and I encourage them, and I try to gather them, and I teach the word and feed them. But when you go home today, I'm entrusting you to the care of God. <coughs> the God who fills all and is all things in all. So Paul and Barnabas went back home having peace of mind. God's got his hand on this church. Do we all go home at the end of the day and say, you know what? God's got this. God's got Living Hope Church in his hand. We're right where he wants us. And he's going to take us where he wants us to go. Am I confident in him to have that mindset of serving others and leading them to him? Because Jesus cares so much more about our church and our kids and their future than we ever will. He cares more about what this church does long term than I ever will. So let me trust what I care about most in the world to him. Because he's done a pretty good job so far building this church. And he's going to keep that up after you and I are long gone. Here's the final point I want us to consider from this passage. When Paul and Barnabas come back from their missionary journey, the, the triumphant heroes have returned home, right? Heroes. We think of them as heroes of the faith, don't we? But when they come back, they celebrate Jesus' wins. They celebrate his wins. We should do the same. Verses 24 to 26. Right? When they passed through those cities, they spoke in the word. They sailed to Antioch, verse 26, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, what are they going to say? They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time there with the disciples. So when they go back home and they share, they're sharing Jesus. I'm sure you guys probably watched a movie recently. Lacey and I watched a movie uh, yesterday evening. Uh, you know, good, good romance movie. It's one I've never seen before. It was pretty good. One thing we didn't do is watch the end credits to see who all had a part in making this movie come about. Does anyone actually watch the end credits in the movies that they watch? In fact, if you're streaming online, they won't even let you. They'll minimize the window because they know nobody watches the end credit. And then they're, they're ready to recommend the next movie, right? Just keep you watching. But you don't need to think about the hundreds and hundreds of people that work behind the scenes to make this movie happen. No one cares about them. You probably can't even name who the executive producer is, right? Maybe in a handful of movies. So they're giving credit, but, but not really. 
And I think of the Christian life. I think of this first missionary journey and all that Paul and Barnabas had done. And when they get back, they said, you know what? It's it's not about all the it's not about all the names. It's not about Paul. It's not about Barnabas. Let me tell you what Jesus did. And they give credit to where credit is due. Because who's the one that sent them out? The Holy Spirit of God. Under Jesus' direction as Lord of all. And the Father and his plan to redeem his children to himself. This was God's plan. He sent them out. He's the one that took care of them and kept them alive and brought them back. To him be all the glory. That's the only name that matters. You don't have to watch the end credits, but give the author of life the credit. He's the one that held this whole thing together. Wow, that is so good. They're declaring what God had done that was so good. They commended to the grace of God. This God just gave this as a gift, you guys, and, and we shared it, we passed it along, and now we're passing it back to you. We're reporting. We're celebrating. And I think that's so important in our churches to have a culture of celebration. But to celebrate the right things. Right? It's really easy to just celebrate, you know, people or a new ministry starting. And we should celebrate those things. And a living hope we will celebrate those things. But may we celebrate the God who's doing all this work and working through us. And we don't make it all about us. We don't take the credit for that. Let's celebrate the wins. Let's celebrate the big wins. As we look forward to launch Sunday, September 18th, one day. We will celebrate that in the near future. And looking back, it will be a cause for celebration and joy. I know that. I know that God has big things in store. We're still in those early stages. It's hard to see. But I know those, those wins are coming. We're going to see new ministry starting. Hopefully, a men's Bible study starting up soon. We'd love to see a women's Bible study starting up soon with some ladies that are interested. We're praying for that. And we would love to see our children's ministry start to, to turn wheels and start to get going here. We'd love to see people come to Christ and get baptized and step up to lead. And we're going to celebrate, celebrate, celebrate as those wins occur. But can we take time to pause? What did God do in your life this past week that... You're not going to put a, up a post on social media about. You're not going to write a book about. But this past week, God kept us alive, didn't he? He gave us opportunities to share our heart with others or to encourage those who are hurting and, and in need of help. And he encouraged me in my personal time of the word and in prayer. And uh, me personally, he, he granted me a 10th anniversary celebration with my wife. What a gift. I didn't deserve that. Credit to God for all that he has done and reflect on that. Because if we lose a culture of celebration in who God has always done, I can either get inward focused and proud, or I can get inward focused and bitter, like those Jews. Well, he's not doing my life what he's doing that person over there. He's not doing this church what he's doing that church over there. Look back on what he has done. There's huge reason to celebrate. And when people look at your life, does God get the glory or is it about you? So why do we do all this? It's to serve. It's to serve in his name. It's to serve our King Jesus. 
We can do that because we're confident in Him. We can serve because we are free, free in that confidence to invest in others, to serve others. And we celebrate His wins because this is His work through His people for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for directing all of this. Jesus, thank you for being our Lord and King and Priest. Thank you, Spirit, for being our power and our joy and our peace. Lord, as we go through the Word this morning, we've been convicted that we are not a confident people. We are not a bold people. We are not, um, we're not people who are selflessly looking to serve others. And yet, Lord, when you work through us, we do see Jesus at work, and we celebrate that. And I want to thank you, God, for continuing to be patient as you develop us. I've got so much room for growth. I need to grow. Our church needs to grow, Lord. And we have yet to see much of what you have in store for us. And yet, Lord, today, this morning, help us to remember why we serve in your name and to praise your name so loudly, so joyfully. And I pray that you'll bring others into this joy, the eternal joy of the Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past. And for those of us this morning here, Lord, that are, that are trying to wrestle with some of these things and are trying to uh, stand on the word and, and embrace it and, and, and live it out, including myself, Lord, give us the grace to do that. Help us to not grow lopsided, but to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we go out in peace and joy. In Jesus' name we pray.